The last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. And I can extract myself from the suffering because my attitude can trump my ego's frustration about the situation if I lock in power of my mind to choose differently. I'm going to master this thing called teaching. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. And I'm not going to let any human being on the face of this planet stop me, not even myself. And genius is available in all of us in the area of our highest value when we care enough intrinsically to be inspired to go after solving those problems. It's, it's waiting for all of us to do that. We can expand our awareness, consciousness, to expand who we are as beings into this new human being that we're becoming. It's the tension and the contrast that actually helps to push us through to the next level of evolution. Our cells have consciousness and so does the bacteria. So we can also tune into our bodies and, and work with our bodies more knowing that and appreciating these billions of points of consciousness. Now when that change takes place, the momentum that's created in our life from that moment on is monumental insights, the wisdom, the guidance, the direction, the spontaneous goodness, serendipity, coincidence, things start to work together for good because we're now in a flow of our personal mind, but we're in the flow of the mind of God. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast. This is a show entirely devoted to the exploration of physical vitality, emotional well-being, and mental fitness. I'm your host and tour guide, Ronnie Landis. I'm a multiple published author, international speaker, performance health coach, global activist, and wellnesspreneur. So buckle your seat, get ready to take notes, and enjoy the ride. It's go time. Before we start the show, I want to highlight one of our sponsors, which is an incredible superfood and alchemical herbal nutraceutical company called Now Alchemy. I've been working with the Now Alchemy products for well over six years and have seen this company grow and expand through the leadership of my dear friend, Archer Love, who is the founder, CEO, and chief formulator for all of the products they provide. They offer a wide range of plant-concentrated tinctures designed to improve immune function, regulate our stress response, improve sleep quality, enhance cognitive function, improve the cell-to-cell communication of our mitochondrial energy production, and support all aspects of bodily health. Some of my favorite products I use on a regular basis are the Ormus Plus, the Limitless Formula, the Immortal, their Shilajit formula, and their Vitality product, to name a few. They also offer unique formulations such as C60 for detoxification and cellular EMF protection, Nano CBD combined with Ormus Minerals, and their Atlantis formula, which is an algae-based, non-oxidized omega-3 product. I love the entire product line and appreciate the integrity to quality that Archer puts into all of his products. You can learn more by going to www.nowalchemy.com and use the coupon code HUMANPOTENTIAL, that's HUMANPOTENTIAL, all one word, to get a discount on your order. Now, let's get ready for today's show.
Greetings and aloha. Welcome to another edition of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I am your host, Ronnie Landis, and welcome to another episode in our solo series. This is series number three, The Mind-Body Connection, and this is episode number four. And the title of this episode is Placebo, Epigenetics, and Spontaneous Healing. So that in of itself is a monumental task to really, you know, extrapolate, to articulate, to cross-connect these different fields of incredible scientific research, evidence-based research, and incredible new emerging studies, new emerging discoveries, I should say, into the field of what's called the placebo effect how that relates to epigenetics, and also this this, um, phenomenon which is called spontaneous healing. Sometimes it's called making a spontaneous remission. I would also call it spontaneous transformation because all of the principles that work in all of those scenarios are basically the same. So this is an exciting episode for me to get into. I waited a couple days just to make sure that I had all the right, um, not just the information, but I had the right points that I wanted to put together for all of you because there are a number of different things that are extremely relevant, extremely, um, it's just very important to get into from my perspective. And, um, you know, we could do an entire episode just on the placebo effect, just on epigenetics. However, we want to tie these things together because when you understand how all of this works together, you start to realize that you have so much more potential and possibility literally wired into your physiology, literally built into your genome, your genetics. Your genetics are designed for transformation but they need the right conditions, they need the right information, they need the right data to switch on the correct switches or triggers to create the catalytic healing and transformational effects that they are designed to make. Otherwise, uh, it can work in the reverse, which is something we're going to talk about, which is called the nocebo effect, and how negative input affects our genetics and affects disease and um, you know all the different aspects of how that plays out into our human experience. So I'm excited to dive into this. The first place that I want to start here, just leading us in, because we have a good amount of information to cover here, is the idea that really what we're talking about when it comes to transformation, whether it's a healing, a transformation in your health, a transformation in your mindset, a transformation in your emotional state, Um, a spiritual or metaphysical transformation, a transformation of self, self self-actualization, a transformation in any area of your life. Ultimately, what it requires is overcoming the default set software program that has been set up in the mind, which we call belief systems. And in order to practically apply and get the, the true potential results that are available to everybody from the information that I'm going to share with you, the first thing we have to understand is that we have embedded conditioned software programs in the form of conscious beliefs and unconscious or subconscious beliefs 
that have been built into our operating system and are the filtering mechanism for how we perceive the outside world, how we perceive our environment, whether our environment is safe or unsafe, it's a threat or not, um, which obviously all of that puts us into a particular dominant nervous system state, either sympathetic, which is a stress response state, or it puts us in more of a parasympathetic state, which is more of a relaxed, even keel, balanced, harmonic state, um, much closer to what we call coherence, the, the heart and the brain synergy. That's coherence, right? The heart-brain connection, the heart and head connection. And we talked about that a little bit before. So now we're just taking it another a, le- a level deeper. And, um, you know, all those same rules apply. Everything that we've already discussed in the mind-body connection in the different episodes, particularly the timeless mind, ageless body episode, we've talked about a lot of things that are alluding and pointing to what we're going to talk to today. So the first thing, again, is that we have to understand that we have faulty programming. We have faulty belief systems. We have faulty assumptions that we we basically have – these belief systems are so deeply embedded that they have created false assumptions of what is possible, which we take on as fact. But it's not a fact. It's mutable. It's adjustable. It's flexible. It's very likely that that information is actually false. And there is no true evidence for that. Um, However, we have become so normalized and so habituated to a certain way of behaving, a certain way of thinking, a certain way of getting on in the world. And the things that we have done to get what we've wanted have worked up to the point that they've worked. But in order to get to where we want to go, we probably have to do something other than what got us to where we are. So in business, they will say, what got you here will not get you there. If you want to get to the next level, if you want to upgrade your operating system to the next level of peak performance, then you got to do something new. You can't just rely on what got you to where you are. And that is one of the challenges. And that's where a lot of the skeptics and the the scientismic kind of clergy, we call them the scientism clergy, basically the prophets of uh, materialistic science, which um, I think I've riffed a little bit in the in the past about this, which is not true authentic science, but it's more of a scientific interpretation based on materialism. And I could go on and on about that. But ultimately, what I'm saying is that we have to be willing to become a different version of ourselves, and we have to be willing to entertain new possibilities if we want to experience new possibilities. That's not too far of a stretch, right? So we have to get out of this whole idea, this idea that we know anything, right? We know what's possible. We know the human body. We know the anatomy. We know the physiology. We know the neurology. We know how the endocrine system works and the hormone systems and the immune system. We got that down. We don't need to learn anything else. That whole idea of materialism and mechanistic allopathic quote unquote science is what's led to the health crisis that we have in the world right now. If we know everything that if we know what we think we know in the world, why do we have the the most detrimental degenerative situation that the human race has ever experienced collectively in our world? We've never experienced as much abundance of knowledge as we have right now. And we've also never expe- experienced the abundance of disease, degeneration, sickness, and 
people living far below their means in every area of their life. You know, we got to start, we got to actually start using innocent perception and calling a spade a spade and start questioning the ivory towers of society and these long held assumptions, which is something that we're going to get into. We are going to get into the assumption of how long the human being is biologically designed to live. That is something we are going to dive into through the study of epigenetics, what has been learned, what has been proven, and over the last, however, six, seven, maybe longer decades of clear research on this topic, we now know that the assumptions of the past, although those served us at that time, in the 1960s in particular, that served us, however, now we know different. We know that much more is possible, and we need to update the, the consciousness of the collective, particularly those in positions of authority, we need to upgrade the consciousness and the ideas with where the science and the evidence is at. So that's part of what I want to talk about. I'm going to extrapolate a number of ideas and um, we're going to get right into it. One of the things I want to talk about just very briefly, I feel like it's important as we talk about the mind-body connection, we cannot forget about the heart. We've talked about this in the past, and ultimately this idea of coherence is a synergy between the head and the heart, the brain and the heart, and your heart contains what are called sensory neurites, and they're brain neurons that are localized in the heart. They act at – they are brain neurons. They're, they're neurons. They are identical to, to the neurons in the brain. They function exactly the same way, and they communicate – throughout the entire neuronal system of the of the body. So the communication between the heart and the head is very important. Now there's a, there's a there's an idea that you just need to follow your heart. And usually that's based on people assuming that emotions are part of the heart. Like oh I just need to follow my heart, so I'm going to follow my emotions, which is different than following your feelings or following your gut instinct, right? which we you know we talked about the gut brain connection and dove deeper into that aspect. So all I want to say about that right now is that I like the idea of following your heart. However, we have to be clear what condition is our heart in? Because if we have a jaded heart, if we have wounds and things of this nature, then our heart could mislead us, right? So ultimately, this idea of following your heart needs to be a transcendent experience where we're in our heart, we open our heart, we heal our heart, so we can actually follow the authentic command of our heart by connecting to something beyond our emotions that are not subject to the emotional wounds, judgments, regrets, or traumas that we may have experienced that have not been reconciled or exercised from the physical body and are still in there, still faulty default programs of operating or of interpreting reality based in limitation of the past experiences. Fight or flight, protecting ourselves against new experiences that could trigger old familiar wounds, right? So ultimately, what that means to me is that we need to develop a communication with the soul, not so much the human heart, the emotional generator but the actual human soul. And that is a, that is a topic that we um, will go a little bit deeper into in the final episode of this series called The Quantum Collapse Process. So we'll go deeper into that. 
But I felt like that was an important thing to just share and mention um, for whomever may find that a useful insight. And one last thing I want to say before we go into this topic is that when it comes to limitations and it comes to these default set programs that we have for how we behave, how we think, how we interpret reality, what we believe is possible, um, ultimately when you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them. So when you're defending your position, you're defending your perspective, you're defending what you believe is true, regardless if it is or not, you actually reinforce the wiring of that belief and it makes it harder to disbelieve that um, even when the evidence is presented in front of you. It makes it very hard to, to see both sides of a coin if you're so focused on one end and you're fighting for that limitation. So a lot of times people have a challenge with practicing this type of transformational this type of transformational information, even though it is evidence-based and scientifically based and documented time and time again, um, people have had incredible, incredible, spontaneous healings that have been well-documented. And even then, it can be very challenging for someone who's more invested in the skepticism department um, because they're ultimately they're fighting for their limitation of perspective. And the more we fight for something, the more we get to keep it. So just be aware. Are you fighting for your limitations? Are you fighting for your limited perspective? Are you fighting to remain right versus being effective? That is something you want to be aware of, um, not just in this conversation, but in all areas of life. <sighs> okay. So now with um, now with all that out of the way, what I want to dive into first is the placebo effect. Now, as we set the stage for this, let me just say this. There is medical proof that not only you can affect profound transformational healing in the body through harnessing the power of the mind, but more to the point that the human body is designed biologically to heal, regenerate, and restore itself, assuming all the right conditions are provided for it to do so. So this is going to be an important theme when we get into this, particularly when we start talking about more of the scientific side of epigenetics, psychoneuroimmunology, psychoneuroendocrinology. Now, these are big words that I will explain as we go through this. But the key idea here is that your body is an inner physician that is designed to medicate itself through, through its own chemistry set. And you can affect the transformational process through harnessing the power of your unlimited mind. When the mind is anchored and embodied into the physical body, through um, different practices, sensory deprivation like flow tanks is a really great way to do it. Ultimately, deep, rich, meditative breathwork practices are the, the best way to access the operating system and start upgrading your capacity to um, you know, basically heal yourself, to regenerate yourself because your body is designed to do that. That's what it does when you sleep. That in of itself should, should be proof enough that your body is designed to do this. But again, we have faulty and limited thinking and we don't take into consideration oftentimes when people are thinking about life expectancy, what is the, the, 
What is the limitation for how long a healthy human being can live? What is the biological limitation? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into this conversation. And there's a lot of different examples and many, many examples, both not so documented and some that are very well documented in different cultures that have far exceeded the consensus agreement for how long we are biologically designed to live in a healthy, stable, um, you know, vital body. So we're going to we're going to dive into that. But the point here, again, is just just driving in the fact that you are designed for this. You are biologically wired to exceed your limitations. This is part of our our biological design. We have something called imaginal cells built into us, which um, most living organisms do now that we we discover this. Butterflies in particular, this was most, um, most noted in butterfly examples where a caterpillar goes into the chrysalis and then the caterpillar actually its phenotype, its physical structure actually completely dissolves into a goop. And then out of that emerges the butterfly. And that, that, that example is more profound than meets the eye as well. There's a lot of interesting nuances to that, which I can't necessarily get into right now um, because it would take me away from the, the core topic. But built into that butterfly example is the ultimate alchemical representation of the transformation process. And ultimately what we're talking about right now is I'm planting the seeds for you to awaken within yourself the reality that in order to heal yourself, in order to transform yourself, in order to express your full potential in the form of your epigenetic triggers in the in the, the actual manifestation of those epigenetics being turned on over a certain amount of time it's a transformational process that requires you to give up who you used to be and all the habits and behaviors that you had become well accustomed to that got you to where you are, right? And it brings up, that's how I started this conversation. That's how I'm going to wrap this around again, is that in order to make this information so, so incredibly valuable and applicable for you, there's a willingness to let go of this idea of the past and who you used to be and what you used to do is we have to adopt a new behavior set. We have to adopt a new way of thinking. We have to to adopt a new way of being. And then once that happens, we have something called a spontaneous healing or a spontaneous transformation. And there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of sequences of events that build up into the spontaneous moment that the healing or transformation occurs on the physical level. Um. So anyways, let's go into the placebo effect. Now that we set that up, the placebo effect ultimately, um, and there's a lot of great books on this. Joe Dispenza has a great book called You Are the Placebo. Um, Basically, the idea of the placebo is that you have an inert substance like a sugar pill or a saline solution, which represents a which is basically a symbol that is used to instill a concrete belief in a medical patient. So, 
if you take somebody, you know, in, in all the all the pharmaceutical studies, they do this. The placebo effect is built into all of that. In fact, it's federal law that all pharmaceutical drugs undergo a double blind placebo test and must beat its corresponding placebo results in at least two trials. What that means is that for a new drug from the pharmaceutical drug to be FDA approved, it must go into um, the it must go through these trials and it must it must beat the placebo the effects of the placebo in the test patients in at least two trials right and what they find is that in most cases the placebo effect the placebo acts just as well if not better than the 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 proposed drug in of itself that's not that surprising to me because these drugs have have you know they have um detrimental effects they have side effects they're not they're not healthy and they're unidirectional oftentimes so they affect one part of the body but then they suppress other parts of the body as well um the placebo idea i mean the placebo idea is just so interesting in of itself but you know when you look at medical research and the fact that medical research already acknowledges that the placebo exists is very fascinating. So they know that the placebo works. In most cases, it works better than the drugs. But how do you monopolize the placebo effect? That's the question, right? How do you make millions and billions and trillions of dollars from a sugar pill or from a saline solution, right? Doesn't quite all add up. Very interesting to consider. Now, another interesting thing about placebos is that placebos statistically range from working anywhere from 10% to 100% on the, on the patients. So this is a wide, wide range. A placebo, a sugar pill, a saline solution, or maybe some other modality, and we're going to talk a little bit more, um, something that's even more fascinating um, than just this example but they're designed to work statistically, or not designed, but statistically they do work anywhere from 10% to 100% in any given patient. So depending on the belief, the conviction, um, the suggestibility of that person's belief, their conscious and unconscious belief that that they are getting a medical drug, a pharmaceutical drug that is designed to do what the doctor tells them it's designed to do, but they're, but they don't get the drug. They get a sugar pill or a saline solution, but they have the assumption and the, the suggested belief that they're taking the, they're taking the drug, right? They're taking the medication. So in their mind, it's going to work just the same. And so depending on the belief of that person that this is going to work, they have found more times than not that increases the efficacy in a lot of cases, the complete recovery of the patient. And that also depends on the doctor because all doctors are different and, and their their ability to be like to communicate empathetically and and. Um, you know, that kind of thing also has been shown to play a big role the, the communication and presence of the doctor itself plays a huge role in the recovery or lack of recovery of the patient. So anyways, this, this statistic that I mentioned, 
This has been shown both in physical results of medical patients following the placebo procedures and also showing up in MRI brain scans showing significant changes in brain activities of patients with depression and other psycho, psychological, psychosomatic type of conditions. Dr. Joe Dispenza has the largest volume and the largest documented library of brain imaging scans that he's done from all of his events and working with all of all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people from all of his events that he's put through these um, these imaging scans, these brain Im- imaging scans to track what brain state they were in at different phases and what brain states are correlated with a transformational breakthrough and what activity is going on in the brain itself. Um, I would just say study his work, dive into it if you want to go into more of the nitty-gritty. Once you see what is being done and what's happening in the testimonies of people and you also see the brain imaging scans and and the corresponding effects of these type of processes, particularly breathwork, meditative processes, tapping into specific brain states and also the suggested audible um, you know, whatever the, the suggested guidance or whatever the actual process to lead people into a self-hypnotic, um, it's like a self-hypnotic state where that person, they basically cast a spell on themselves, a positive spell, a placebo spell, if you will. And that spell, remember language is a spell because when you spell something out, you're casting a spell. So the words we use and the language and the way we communicate with ourselves, and the, and the, what we accept from other people communicating to us about what's true and what's not true, what's possible and not possible has a suggestive effect on our, our health, you know, not in, in obviously our mindset and all that but on our physiological, biological, cellular health, which is absolutely incredible. One more thing I want to mention as we're talking about the placebo effect, um, I've been fascinated, by the way, with this for many, many years. I've known about this for at least maybe 14 or 15 years. And the way that I heard about this whole phenomenon was through the work of a man named Norman Cousins. Norman Cousins, uh, he he was uh, an incredible activist, but before he became an activist and before he wrote the book *The Anatomy of an Illness*, he was um, he was uh, he he was very ill. He had a you know he had a degenerative condition, some form of an arthritic condition. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was some form of an arthritic condition. The doctor basically said that. You know that this is this is the end of the road, and there's no way to reverse this. And you know it's kind of the, the doomsday story, right? Well, Norman Cousins decided that instead of taking medications or any kind of surgical approach, he was going to lock himself in a hotel room and just watch comedy. And he got the insight that he could laugh himself into good health. Which is now we know that that that's actually that's that's not a far off idea. But back in those days, we're talking about like the nineteen was this either the fifties or the sixties? I can't remember, but something like that. This was a crazy idea, right? And oftentimes it is those crazy ideas that turn out to be the breakthroughs in the the innovative ideas that lead us into the future. 
we can never forget that. So basically, he he actually completely reversed his condition in an amazing amount of time. I don't remember exactly what it was, but in, in a very short amount of time, the fact that he did it at all is astonishing enough compared to the prognosis that he received. Um, and what he said is that, uh, what was it, two hours of deep laughter gave him a deep night's sleep. I think that's what it was. He said two hours of deep laughter every night gave him one night of deep sleep. That is absolutely incredible. And that speaks to so many things, particularly the power of the parasympathetic state and tapping into the autonomic nervous system through the power of laughter. And what does laughter do? Well, Aside from all the like cocktail of chemicals that it secretes into the brain, instead of the biochemical perspective, let's just take it to the fact that laughter initiates emotional states that create mental evidence of well-being. Because the emotional state that you would associate with um, a degenerative condition, you know, if a doctor told you that you only have a certain amount of time to live or this is incurable, it would be reasonable to say if you if you accepted that program and you were living that, you wouldn't be laughing too much, right? You would have the opposite effect. You would have a frown. You would your physiology would be downward. You would be pessimistic, maybe regretful, um, resentful, you know, all that kind of thing. When you laugh and you're really you're really in that that laughter zone, you know, they have something called laughter yoga in India very for this purpose for exactly the same purpose, funny enough, um, it changes the entire interpretation of your personal experience. So your mind actually has to adapt to the evidence that your body actually is totally fine, that you're in a great state of of health, you're, you're positive, you're optimistic, you're joyful, you're happy, you're grateful and appreciative. Your brain waves, your brain wave state must shift in response to that physiological act of laughter, right? That is a powerful insight right there, how our behavior and how we have complete control over our behavior affects our physiology, it affects our biology, but it also affects our psychology and the belief systems have to get overridden. If our belief system is like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm sick and I'm dying, but you're laughing all the time. Then those belief systems have no no ground to stand on. There's no evidence for those belief systems, so they're going to get upgraded or overridden automatically. This is how our behavior is so powerful for affecting the you know, the the health and harmony and the all the other factors of what we're talking about. Um, your belief systems, your identity, all these things. So powerful. Um, let's talk about the nocebo effect. So the nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect. The Latin de- definition of nocebo comes from the word nasere, which means to harm. And so in nocebo in Latin means I will harm. So it means to harm and let in means I will harm. So ultimately, it's self-inflicted negativity, self-inflicted damage. That's what the nocebo effect is doing. Now, look at this. 
negative expectations of a patient regarding the treatment that they are getting causes the treatment to have a more negative effect than it otherwise would. This is um, this is potent. This is this is a good opportunity for me to actually bring in something that I had for a later part in our talk. Um, and it's it's really around this idea of psychoneuroimmunology. Um, and the psychosomatic effect, the effect that our psychology has on our, our body being the somatic effect on our body, psychosomatic, how the mind affects the chemistry set and the physiology of our body. And there's also something called psychoneuroendocrinology, which is basically how our psychology and our brain chemistry is affecting our endocrinology, which is how our body produces, synthesizes, and distributes hormones. So you can upregulate or downregulate certain hormones through your neuro, um, your neuropsychology. So neuro, so psychoneuroimmunology is the same idea, but it's just with your immune system. Can you affect the the immune system through thought alone? And the answer is absolutely yes, because we know that stress is the number one um, detriment to health in the 21st century, the 20th and 21st century. We know that without a doubt. That is proven. That is agreed upon by every major researcher, doctor, nutritionist, naturopath, um, herbalist, you know, um, surgeon, like everybody worth their salt in their profession. They all know that ultimately the real killer is chronic, consistent forms of stress. And most of the time, stress is self-inflicted because it comes from misperception of our life. It comes from an imbalanced perception of whatever our circumstances are, and we perpetuate our circumstances based on an imbalanced perspective. That's a whole thing in of itself, but really what that that talks about is the effect of when a patient goes, for example, a really good example that I, I talk to people about all the time is let's say you have a man in his um, you know late 40s, early 50s, he's going for his his uh, checkup, you know, the midlife checkup, or he might even be going for like his yearly or annual checkup. Nothing is perceivably wrong. He has no signs of any issues. He's in a relatively good state of health. He goes to the doctor. The doctor does whatever tests on him. He comes back. The doctor tells him, Mr. Jones, Mr. Smith, whomever, I have bad news for you. We are, we, we detected the development of a tumor, the development of a cancer. And all of a sudden, the doctor gives them that news, whether it's true or not. Um, this is the nocebo effect. Remember, the, the, the effect on the body of a negative, a negative affirmation or negative news, right? And really negativity as an energy because you can get quote unquote bad news. But if the energy of fear is not present there, then it doesn't have the same effect. So it's really the fear component that cripples us. It's the fear and the, the taking in of the fear and allowing the fear to create doubt, worry, and concern inside of us 
that actually seems to um, create the, the cascade of negative chemistry. So anyways, in that example, what we have seen so many times is that somebody gets a checkup, nothing seems to be wrong, they get some kind of news from the doctor, and immediately the doctor injects them, inoculates them with a viral infection of fear. And then when that individual steps out of that, that um, doctor's office and they go into their life, all of a sudden – they manifest the exact thing that the doctor told them because they took on the assumption of the doctor. They took on the information of the doctor and they created as a fact in their own personal experience. And now that person who didn't have cancer all of a sudden has contracted cancer and is being prepped for you know, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery for, for a tumor that's now manifested. Um, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty wild how this happens. Um, I've even seen it. I've seen it um, in my own experience. But, you know, you don't need to draw it an extreme example to know that this is true because when you focus on something that is negative or focus on lack, limitation, not having enough, not being enough, um, you focus on something that has a negative connotation to it, you can feel it in your body. You don't need a whole set of, of double-blind placebo studies to figure out that this is a this is a real phenomenon that we all experience. And one of the great examples is the constant negative news, CNN, constant negative news, right? CBS, ICBS, right? <laughs> so the constant negative news broadcast is literally the modern day voodoo, which is casting a hypnotic spell upon the masses. And this is the, this is the inoculation uh, delivery system for you know, cultural fear programs, which is causing people to go to their doctor and get the medications without questioning, without researching, without empowering themselves in any way, but just taking on the suggestive messages of somebody in a white trench coat or somebody in a blue um, office called a police office or office um, blue suit or blue uniform. That's the word I'm looking for. Called a police officer or a government official or a military general or or whatever, right? Political leader, whomever. We take on these programs. We imbue more authority in that person. Oh, they must know more than us. So I'm just going to take that at face value and I'm going to let it become an encrypted, corrupted program in my software program. And that is going to have an epigenetic effect on me, which is going to translate into my ultimate destiny um, health wise and, and all, uh, all uh, other areas of my life as well. That's basically what's happening. So we got it. We got to interrupt that, that news broadcast and interrupt that pattern and be very careful about the suggestive messages and the assumed facts that we are taking in as empirical facts because they have a monumental effect on all areas of our life. Now, as we're moving along, we still have a couple things that I want to get into here. The, the third thing in this placebo effect idea is probably one of the most interesting, which is called sham surgeries. I got really interested in this about five years ago. So a sham surgery is basically a placebo surgery. So they'll take two people. Let's say they're getting, um, uh, they're getting orthoscopic 
um, a knee surgery. So they're just, you know, I got that. I got both. I got that twice on each knee. I had two knee surgeries. I actually got, well, as far as I know, (laughs) I could have gotten, I could have got a sham surgery, but as far as I know, I got those surgeries and they're like micro indentations into the knee. And then they take a little bit, they, they're, they cleave off scar tissue and, and, you know, they use a cadaver or whatever they're using to piece back the MCL or the ACL or cartilage that was torn, whatever it is. The point is that they can take two people with an identical injury that needs surgery and one person gets the surgery, the other person is told that they got the surgery and when they are on anesthesics, then they um, they basically, they, they'll, they'll make a little indent into the knee where you would and but they won't go into the knee. They'll just make that little incision so it looks like they got the surgery and then after, after, the, after they come back, they will play a video of somebody getting the knee surgery. So that person completely believes that they got an authentic knee surgery or whatever the surgery is. There's many, many different examples at this point. And they heal just as good or not if better than the person who got the real surgery. I would recommend looking this up, sham surgeries, the power of belief. But here's the thing. It can't be a manufactured belief or a convoluted belief of like, oh, I just I believe this. That's the whole like, you know, the whole law of attraction industry and the whole personal development industry is like, you know, you just got to believe it. Well, you know, that's that's a that's a there's a lot of roots to our belief and they're dug down pretty deep. So when somebody else that you imbue authority on tells you that you just got a surgery, we're giving you a surgery you automatically believe that you got the surgery or you took the the medical treatment or whatever the thing is, right? So this is very powerful information. Um, And you can hack your own autonomic nervous system or you you can hack into your autonomic nervous system. So you can start upgrading the the software programs that are dictating your behavior Um, that can actually, you can, so you can auto suggest the programs that you want to be living in, which that's what we're going to go into in the final episode, the quantum collapse process. I'm actually going to walk you through how to do that. So I just want to make that note because I know you could be like, well, how do we do this? We're going to get there. So now let's talk about, there's two more things that I want to get into that I think is really powerful and, and relevant. Let's talk about epigenetics. So the idea of epigenetics is not a new idea, um, but a little background on how this science emerged. The original idea of our genetics was that, you know, and Gregor Mendel, the the original kind of founder of, you know, it's Mendel Genetics, um, you know, and he did all these experiments on splicing the genes of pea plants and other other plants and, and, hybridization, and hybridizing different things and, you know, playing with genes that way. That's kind of where all this comes from. But but speeding up quite a bit. The original idea on genetics is that when you're born, you have a set amount of genes, you have your genes are locked into place. And whatever genetic disposition that you are given, that is your lot in life. And you can't change it. And that's just the way it is, right? That's the original idea, just like something called neurogenesis, which we'll talk about in our next series on the brain, um, on longevity, talking about the brain. 
there's something called neurogenesis and the original idea of course is it's like it's like all these things go through the same exact process and the same you know the same uh, paradigm which is that oh yeah we know everything we we know that your brain cells your neurons you, the, all you got what you got when you're born that's all you get and you know you better take care of it because you can't reproduce your neurons and now we know something called neurogenesis you can actually repair and 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 uh, reproduce generate new neuronal cells and also new synaptic connections the webbing of those neurons together through the communication system of the brain you can develop more uh, synaptic connections called something something called synaptogenesis and neurogenesis Oh, whoops, we missed that because we were pretty sure we knew everything until something else came along. This is what science is, ladies and gentlemen, by the way. It's constantly being updated. And an authentic scientist never assumes he or she knows anything. They're just approximating what we're learning. But there's never, ever an end. Scientism is super arrogant and just assumes that oh yeah we figured it out we don't we can just move on from here now right it's corporate funded it's basically for profiteering it has nothing to do with real science so that's that's just my riff and rant on that now epigenetics epigenetics is basically the the emergent research and discovery that not only not only are your genes not dormant or i mean well let me let me back up not only are your genes not fixed but you also have dormant genes, dormant DNA that is inactive and through the right catalyst, through the right conditions like, like microbes in a soil, through the right conditions of the soil, then plants and, and whatever's growing in the soil can grow more vigorously, right? And we're going to talk about what that is in, in another discovery around this. But epigenetics, basically, epi means up or above. Genetics is genetics. It's the material in your genome, your DNA. And um, that makes that that is who you are on a, on a physical level, physio-biological level. That's, that's who you are. And that's where the programs that determine who you are, what you look like, your, your characteristics, your physical characteristics called your phenotype. You have your genotype and your genetics are like the switches and the information turning things on and off. So there is longevity genes that may have been laying dormant that can be activated through the right conditions and the right stimulus and the right compounds like nutrients, for example. You can turn on certain genes that are associated with longevity. The opposite is true too. Just like there's the placebo effect, there's also the nocebo effect, which ultimately all of that is now we're distilling it into what's actually going on, which is your epigenetics. Now, what's really interesting about this too is that there's something called social genomics, which is how your genetics are affected and influenced by your social circles. So this must mean that our belief systems and our, our ideas and our social constructs and our paradigms must actually not just affect our psychology, but they must affect our genetics as well. And the people that we surround ourselves with, there we all have 
auras. We all have bioenergy fields, right? So it must we must be influencing the genes and the, the biology of each other um, just by the people that we're in closest dominant proximity to. And then there's something called nutrigenomics, which is new, um, genetic-based nutrition. How nutrition influences your genetics, the epigenetic factors. So um, on this topic, there's uh, something called junk DNA. And junk DNA is, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's just another one of those ideas, just like the original idea on, on brain cells and, and the old idea on genetics. Well, junk DNA is basically the same thing. And junk DNA is an old idea born out of those same ideas, which is basically just that um, you know, you have 99% or 98% of your genes are unusable. They call that non-protein coding genes. I'm going to pull something up here that I, I thought was um, really representative of this. So in my book, The Holistic Health Mastery Program, which I wrote about seven years ago, I have an entire chapter called The Epigenetic Factor. So that's entirely on epigenetics. There was a quote by... A man named um, Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins is um, how would you describe him? He's a materialist. You know, he's an atheist. Like that—that's his religion, basically. He is an atheist, and he's a rationalist. So everything's material. There is nothing to do with spirit or emotions or energy. That's all woo-woo. It doesn't exist. It's irrational. And um, this is what Richard Dawkins had to say about the junk DNA idea, which is that. It is a remarkable fact that the greater part of the genome might as well not be there for all the difference it makes. I mean, you know, I'm not like, I'm not an academic scientist, but, you know, when I hear this kind of stuff from quote unquote, like, people of higher learning and accomplished academics and people that are so... There's like how arrogant do you have to be to be like a, a full blown materialistic atheist? You know, just a little side note. How arrogant do you have to be? Like, you know that God doesn't exist. You know that there's no spirit. No, you don't. You're being hijacked by a program called materialism and it's influencing your entire worldview to the point where a statement like that can come out of someone's mouth who's otherwise quite brilliant and does have a lot of really interesting ideas, but they're all posed in the negative, like his idea around the selfish gene, um, this idea that our genetics are selfish, um, which, you know, there's interesting ideas around that, but ultimately that's born through what's called um, uh, Charles Darwin's The Survival of the Fittest or The Survival of the Strongest, which is all about competition. You know, it has nothing to do with collaboration, has nothing to do with harmony, love, peace, joy, growth, evolution, transformation, prosperity for all. It's just really this negative downward spiral into like pessimism and that we're inherently selfish beings and we're competitive and we're nothing more than intelligent mammals. That's that's basically what all those people believe, you know, in these atheistic religions and materialism. And, um, you know, I just say all that because this is these are the pervading paradigms and ideas that are operating a lot of these different these different paradigms, these different ideas 
that society is adopting. And um, I just think it's important that we understand how these things are coming into being and also how kind of ridiculous they are based on the evidence and the science that we have to to that actually shows that that is not true, that epigenetics is a real thing, that the placebo effect is real, that sham surgeries do happen, and that spontaneous healings and spontaneous remissions happen all the time. Now, we're getting closer to the conclusion point. So the next thing I want to talk about in relationship to the epigenetic phenomenon um, is something called telomeres. So your telomeres, which you've probably heard about by now, if you've been if you if you've been into health for any amount of time, this is a pretty popular, pretty well-known idea. I've been studying it for about eight years now. It was it really came through by a man named Bruce Lipton. He wrote the Biology of Belief and a book called Spontaneous uh, Spontaneous Healing, I believe. It was Spontaneous Healing, Spontaneous Remission, one of those two titles. But um, that's who I originally heard it through. A lot of different amazing people talking about it. But basically, the telomeres are our most reliable biomarker for aging disease and also psycho-emotional health conditions. So what the telomeres are is that they are the predictor of our longevity, their predictor for life expectancy, and also the quality of our physical life, our physical health. And they basically, if you can imagine in your double helix DNA strand, you have something called chromosomes. And the chromosomes basically carry the genetic information of your DNA. And on the, on the, um, they're kind of like, they, they kind of look like two, if you can imagine, um, it's almost like two sporks that are, that are inverted. Um, but basically there, there are four, there's four points to them. And on the end of each leg of a telomere or of the chromosome are end caps called telomeres. And they basically protect the chromosomes from unwinding and unraveling. So they're DNA protective, um, material. If you imagine a shoelace, then the plastic wrapping at the end of the shoelace is like what the telomeres are. And just like in our health, when we when the telomeres start to shorten and unravel, then our DNA starts to shorten and unravel. The chromosomes start to degrade. And this is why this the telomeres are the primary biomarker for um, health. Now, what shortens the telomere length? Basically, it's poor diet, childhood abuse, trauma, PTSD conditions, so psycho-emotional conditions, spiritual conditions, environmental toxicity, a lack of love and self-love. So not feeling love from other people and not feeling love for self. This is a huge point. Um, a huge point that has to do with this. And then another point that Bruce Lipton actually made, which I found really fascinating and it corroborated my intuition about longevity, which is that what shortens telomere length, maybe more than anything from a, from a stress, chronic stress perspective is the lack of desire to live longer. So if somebody doesn't feel love and they don't have love for themselves, they don't have a desire to be here because they're essentially in pain. So nobody wants to be somewhere where you're perpetually in a state of pain. So they lose a desire to live longer, which influences their ability to live longer. And ultimately, that person has a lack of purpose in life. So one thing that we have seen to be true is that people that have a purpose to live, they un- they end up wanting 
to live longer. And a lot of times those people end up living longer with quality of life and quantity of life. So those are very important points. Now, the the prior idea around aging, because this was I want to conclude this point that I, I kind of riffed about earlier. The there's something called the Hayflick limit. This was discovered in 1961 by a scientist by the name of Hayflick. And so it's called the Hayflick limit. And he basically he deduced based on the research of telomeres that we are biologically designed to live to 120. This is the consensus paradigm for the for how long the human being is biologically designed to live. So the Hayflick limit defines the amount of time our telomeres can divide until they are no longer functional. So again, very similar to the neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, um, epigenetic or prior to epigenetic, the idea around genetics, that what you have to start with is all that you get and that your telomeres once they once they divide a certain amount of times they replicate that they can't replicate anymore that they start to dwindle down and then we lose the ability to regenerate our telomere length um so that so basically what they deduced is that based on that fact all positive lifestyle factors included were bi- biologically designed to live to 120 now, for a lot of people, that's not a bad thing because life expectancy in America is, you know, for men, it's somewhere around like 74 or something. And women, it's like a couple years more. That sucks. That is a poor expectation. But you can see why that is because people are medicated. They're in pharmaceutical drugs. They have all kinds of surgeries. They have all kinds of you know, they've had amputations of some sort or surgical procedures. They have all kinds of bionic or metal in their body. They're not entirely human anymore. Um, people are drugged up, eating all the kinds of crazy foods and stuff they are. So, you know, people have lost their humanity and they've lost their their connection to their own well-being. So they don't really want to be here. That is definitely influencing life expectancy. So for all for most people, living 120 is a pretty remarkable thing. Um, and what we've discovered is that that is only, that is only um, an idea. There's actually many examples of people in different cultures that have been documented, by the way, both in India and in China are the most pronounced examples I'm thinking of, um, where people have lived up to 150, 180 there is one example of a man that actually has significant documentation implying that he lived up to 197 or 256 depending on um, depending on a few different documented um, discrepancies. But the documentation shows that this individual lived at, at minimum 197 or at maximum 250 six, I believe. Um, so that, you know, type that in, find it, play with that for yourself. I'm just pointing out contrasting ideas here. Don't, don't throw me underneath the bus because you didn't research this and this sounds completely ridiculous. Um, so now just, just concluding on the telomere thing for a moment. Now what we've discovered, and this was discovered quite a while ago, a couple decades ago, by a woman named Elizabeth Blackburn and two other Nobel Prize winning researchers, they discovered that 
your telomeres can actually extend and regenerate themselves, but they require an enzyme that's been called telomerase, which en- which extends the end caps of the chromosomes called telomeres. Now, probably the reason why Hayflick and wh- whomever was studying this stuff believed that the telomeres don't reproduce themselves after a certain amount of time is because the telomerase enzyme needs to be activated by certain it needs to be activated by certain nutrients the right environment all the things that we talked about the soci- the social genomics aspect the nutrigenomics the epigenetics basically the epigenetics means anything outside of us has an effect on what's going on inside of us so our environment in other words has the biggest part to play on our genetic potential. And that seems to be the case with the telomere situation. You can study telomeres a lot deeper. I just wanted to bring all this information to the fold and to the surface and and, um, connect these dots. I've talked about this stuff a lot deeper in in my books, particularly the Holistic Health Mastery Program, my online course, the Holistic Health Mastery Program, the same name. I've gone a lot deeper into this stuff if you want to go deeper, and you can always research all of this as well. Now, we're not done yet. We have one more thing to talk about, which is spontaneous healing. Now, I'm going to go somewhere with you on this that I think is the ultimate concluding point to this whole conversation, which is the sacred Hawaiian forgiveness prayer called Ho'oponopono. Ho'oponopono, the sacred Hawaiian forgiveness prayer. Now, this is this is one of the most profound things I've ever come across, and it basically is a part of what we call prayer technology. Um, prayer technology is a very real thing, and it's something I'd recommend you researching and employing into your life. It's the idea of praying for what you want, but it's it's the experience of experiencing it completely as if it happened spontaneously which is what the prayer is. Now, the way that the prayer goes is, I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive everyone who may have hurt me. I forgive myself for those who I may have hurt. Let's forgive ourselves. Thank you. So when an individual says this prayer inside of themselves and they repeat it over and over and they feel the feelings of it, that has been shown to be, uh, well, especially in the Hawaiian shamanic culture in particular, this is their central prayer and peace treaty um, practice. And one of the other cool things about the Hawaiian culture is that they use a plant um, medicine, a plant brew, not a psychoactive plant medicine, but a plant herbal brew called kava kava, or sometimes they call it ava ava, but um, you'll, you'll probably notice kava kava, and they'll use the, the Ho'oponopono sacred Hawaiian prayer in combination with Kava Kava circles. And they would do this sometimes between feuding tribes because when feuding tribes, um, basically when they come together and drink Kava Kava, they can't, they, they, it's said that when you drink Kava Kava that you cannot be angry. You, you go into your heart, you go into the state of coherence. And I know that from my own experience of many, many years of being on the Hawaiian islands, being in the Hawaiian culture, and drinking a lot of kava and doing kava ceremonies, and also practicing the Ho'oponopono prayer in combination with that, 
which is just really powerful. Now, in ancient Hawaiian healing practices, the art of Ho'oponopono is considered sacred and highly effective. This is the practice of reconciliation and forgiveness as a way to heal an individual and promote healing in the world. This could be looked at similarly to the concept of karma that originates in the Hindu traditions. The central idea of forgiveness work from the Polynesian perspective is that through our thoughts, words, and actions, we can liberate ourselves from the constraints of karma and remove the barriers to our divinity. An example of how one may participate in this practice is by phrasing the following words to either themselves or the others they are in conflict with. I'll say this one more time. I love you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive everyone who may have hurt me. I forgive myself for those who I may have hurt. Let's forgive ourselves. Thank you. So that's a prayer technology that you can use. Now, how do, what does that have to do with spontaneous healing? I'm going to read you something that comes out of my book, The Inner Alchemy Youthening Program. And this is on the chapter called um, uh, Beauty Consciousness in the section called Forgiveness. And um, there's an incredible story that really articulates this. So I'm referencing Joe Vitale's book. Um, it's called At Zero. So Joe, Joe Vitale discusses Ho'oponopono as a way of cleansing the unconscious programs operating in the subconscious mind. Forgiveness work is used as a methodology for resetting the internal dialogue and awakening the softer voice of the soul. In his book, Joe cites a story about a psychologist, Dr. Ahala – hold on. I haven't said this name in a while. Ahala Likolala. I totally just screwed that. <laughs> I'm so sorry, especially anyone that's Hawaiian. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Dr. Hugh Len. That's that. I, I totally cannot pronounce his first name, but it's Dr. Hugh Len who healed a complete ward of criminally insane patients without ever seeing them face to face. I want you to listen to this. Now he healed a ward, an entire ward of criminally insane patients without ever seeing them face to face. We go on to say at first glance, this appears to be a preposterous, but upon appears to be preposterous, but upon further analysis, it becomes astonishingly remarkable. Dr. Len sat in his office reviewing the inmate files, and instead of focusing his intention on the inmate, he would immediately turn his intention within himself. He would look into himself to discover how he created that person's illness. He took 100% responsibility for creating the external circumstance he witnessed in the patient, even when he didn't witness it with his own two eyes. Most of us understand complete responsibility as assuming it for our own lives. Very few of us would grasp the magnitude of assuming it for another person, let alone someone we have never ever met before. Wow. You, not, you might need to replay that for a second or just study that. His doctor, the Dr. Len Hugh, the book that I'm referencing is Joe Vitale at zero, but you can just look up Dr. Len Hugh. He worked in a psychological ward, a, a, um, a psychiatric ward of criminally insane patients. And when he was done, the entire ward 
was completely healed. Every patient in the ward was confirmed healed, released, and that ward basically went empty and went out of business because, you know, these things are businesses. Like jail is a business. Just a side note. Um, It went out of business. That's absolutely incredible. So that's a spontaneous healing. And the power of prayer technology as a felt experience, not just for ourselves, but praying for other people that we're connected to, people that we have resentment with, people that we have anger towards, ex-partners, our parents, our school teachers, religious leaders, our president, whoever it is that triggers us is triggering a wound inside of us that must heal. And because of the quantum phenomenon of non-locality, we can transform another person through transforming ourselves by imbuing our own healing and integrating our perspective in our own wounds, integrating ourselves by focusing on the healing of another person. And it's a spontaneous healing, like the twin photon experiment that I talked about in the sexual alchemy talk. It happens simultaneously. Absolutely incredible. So there you go. This was the placebo epigenetic spontaneous healing episode. So glad I uh, I did this. I was a little nervous. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to fully download this for all of you and transmit it, but clearly it worked out. I hope that you enjoyed this. Dig deeper into yourself and um, let's keep exploring the fringes of what's possible in this one life that we get. Much love and aloha. We'll connect with you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of High Performance Health. Remember the saying, knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is only power when the knowledge has been applied. So, before you leave, I want to recommend five basic principles that, if done each day, will result in physical vitality, emotional well-being, and increased mental agility, as well as overall resilience to all forms of stress. Number one, take 10 deep diaphragmatic breaths each morning when waking up and each night before sleeping. Number two, remember one liter of high quality structured water each morning before eating. Number three, eat only when hungry. Do not eat too much too fast and bless your food each and every day. Number four, close your eyes. Put your hands on your heart and relax your nervous system. And number five, only use phones when necessary. Keep your back upright when on the computer and shut down screen time in 90 minutes prior to going to bed. There you go, my friend. I hope you take what you learned in this episode and create the life you deserve. You can support this podcast by going to www.hhphealth.com forward slash review to give us a rating and a review. This helps boost us in the iTunes ratings and makes this podcast more visible to more people in the world. You can also join the discussion on our Facebook community group by going to www.hhphealth forward slash group. And finally, you can also check out all of my current coaching programs, courses, books, podcast episodes, and more by going to www.hhphealth.com. 
Thank you for being part of the health and healing movement. And until next time, make the rest of your life the best of your life. Aloha.